The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to Psalm 37, taking a one-week break from the series of turning points. But looking this morning at Psalm 37, the first part of this psalm, verses 1 through 11. Hear God's word. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. If you've ever been in the ocean, and I'm sure lots of you have, if not all of you, you know that you have to beware if there's a strong undertow, a current that can carry you out into deep and dangerous water. Parents are always concerned about their kids when they swim in the ocean that they're not taken in that kind of a current. The thing that's tricky about undertow is that as long as you're being carried along by it, you hardly know it's there. It's when you try to resist the current that you really feel its power. Psalm 37 is an extended meditation on the truth found in verse 11, the meek shall inherit the earth. But the fact is that in this life, it doesn't typically appear that way. It's a spiritual truth. It's a biblical truth that has to be perceived by faith. And so the psalm meditates extensively on that truth. We're just looking at the first part of the psalm. And so, in the beginning part of the psalm, there is this clarion call not to fret, not to envy. We see it at the very beginning in verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers. Then the theme is again in verse 7. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. And again in the middle of verse 8, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. As you look at the world, as you look at your life, there's a temptation there. And the psalm is calling us away from that, fretting and envying, coveting and worrying, discontent and anger, all of these related sins. 
They're like a strong spiritual undertow that takes us away from our walk with Christ. Envying is fretting about someone else's success. It can be described as losing your contentment in God because someone else is somehow being blessed in a way that you aren't. Envy is looking at someone else's life and comparing your life and then being dissatisfied with God's providence, God's purposes and ways and dealings and his will for your life. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Respectable Sins, which is a course that's going to be taught here this fall, he defines envy as, to quote him, the painful and often resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. Interesting definition, the painful awareness and this resentful awareness of somebody else's advantage or blessing, we might say. And here in Psalm 37, the focus is especially envy over the unrighteous or the ungodly who seem to be prospering, who seem to be so successful. The worldly person may seem to be flourishing, and the godly may be tempted to fret or envy, we're being told in this psalm. Well, we know that envy comes in many forms. I found myself tempted to envy a neighbor who periodically jogs by my house, and he's about my age, and I actually know him. He's a friend, and I just am sad, and that's okay to be sad, but not to envy the fact that because of problems with my back, I can't run anymore. So I'm tempted to envy him. He can. Or husbands might envy other husbands because of something about that husband's wife. Or wives envying husbands who appear so loving with their wives. Or you might envy someone about their job, something about the success of their job or the pay that they receive or the kind of work that they're doing. Or you might envy uh, other family's children because the children seem to be easier to raise or maybe more successful in some way. Children, I don't know what you envy these days. Maybe it's uh, your friend got a new gizmo of some kind or the new updated iPhone, and there's a temptation there. Generally speaking, envy looks at another person's lot in life and has a sense of dissatisfaction with God because it seems like there's greener grass over there than in my life. Scriptures talk about envy in many ways. In Psalm 37, later on in the psalm, in verse 35, it describes, it says, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. What a powerful image of just a green tree, deep roots, lots of shade, In other words, everything seems to be going so well. The sister psalm to Psalm 37, if you turn the numbers around and think of Psalm 73, it's really on the same theme. And there, Asaph is talking about the fact that his feet had almost slipped when he saw the prosperity of the ungodly. And he talks about how their lives seem to be so easy and successful and they're wealthy and their children all healthy. Everything is going well. But then he considers their final destiny. So you can envy someone over the lack of troubles in their life. You can envy them over their prestige or their success. Joseph's brothers, you remember, envied Joseph in Genesis 37:11 because of his father's favor to him and the coat his father gave him. Or remember that Rachel 
envied Leah because of the, of the sons that God gave Leah and he didn't give Rachel. You can even envy preachers of the gospel. Paul writes in Philippians 1.15 about the fact that in Rome, there were those preaching the gospel out of goodwill to Paul and love for Christ. And he says, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. And they were doing it, he says, to somehow hurt Paul. These were people who were preaching the genuine gospel of Christ. Paul goes on to rejoice that the gospel is being preached. It wasn't that they were preaching something false, but even there he's saying it's possible to preach partly out of a motivation of envy and rivalry. Nothing, no part of our lives are immune from the ways our hearts go astray. And we could say envy is the flip side of covetousness. Covetousness is wanting what someone else has, and we certainly have to be aware of that as well. Envy, we could say, is being upset that they have it, closely related. Being unhappy with the other person's happiness, a wrong sense of satisfaction at another person's misfortune. That can be backhanded envy. If you find yourself slightly rejoicing that somebody that you're actually envying is now having a hard time, you know your heart has gone wrong. Interesting thing about envy is that we usually envy people with whom we most closely identify and in the areas we most value. Think of uh, a baseball player who's in a double A team and he's a good baseball player. Who does he tend to envy? Not the big major league superstars. Maybe he does sometimes. But it's more likely he would envy one of his friends on the team who has a skill set very similar to his, and maybe the team manager is favoring his friend a little bit and his friend's having a lot of success right now. It's more likely that we'd envy someone like that we're closely identified with, we value the same things. You think you'd be more tempted to envy Bill Gates or the neighbor next door? The neighbor next door, right? Bill Gates is way up there, one of the wealthiest men in the world. You you probably don't compare yourself to him or... Uh, young folks, maybe do you envy Prince William and Princess Kate, or do you envy a friend of yours in high school? Probably the friend close by. Proverbs fourteen thirty says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Just showing the way envy is so insidious and destroys our spiritual state of mind. Or Proverbs twenty three seventeen, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. It takes us to our walk with God, our fear of the Lord. Or Galatians 5.25 says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Somewhat surprising. Here's Paul exhorting the Galatians about the problem of envy and provoking in the church itself. Well, how do we guard our hearts? I want us to see five elements of seeing to our walk with God that this psalm points out. I just want to walk through these five elements. And really, the heart of it is this. Envy is our hearts going wrong. So when, we, when it crops up, when we see envy in our hearts, we need to see to our relationship to God. What are the elements we see here? The first we see is trust in the Lord, verse 3. 
Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. The idea there is of saving faith that is bringing forth fruit. Trust in the Lord and do good. This is true saving faith in Christ. And saving faith is the beginning point because that's where our hearts are transformed. Only Jesus Christ can transform our hearts. And it's only as we trust in Christ that he makes us anew and initially when we come to him in conversion and then he's remaking us for the rest of our lives. But the very beginning point is trusting Jesus Christ. We receive eternal life. We receive the forgiveness of sins through faith. And also through trusting Jesus Christ, he is at work rooting out the wrong attitudes and desires of our hearts. Every temptation to envy is a temptation to doubt God. At the heart of the sin of envy is a sense of doubt about the goodness of God as to whether God is really for me. Because if he were for me, then why is my friend or this other person seeming to be blessed and I'm not? You see, that's where we have to start in our battle of faith against envy. Do we believe at this moment that God is great and God is good, God is all sovereign and God is loving to me and he is for us in Jesus Christ and I stand in Christ. Don't we all love that Heidelberg Catechism question number one, what is your chief comfort in life and in death? Is that I am not my own but belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, my faithful Savior and Lord. We love that question because it affirms, it just nails the whole idea that Jesus Christ is my Lord and he is for me, come what may. Isn't that what we sang in that second verse of our first hymn? And whether our tomorrows be filled with good or ill, we don't know whether it's going to be good or ill this week, will triumph through our sorrows and rise to bless you still. That's not giving in to envy, that's trusting in the Lord. The second element is delight in the Lord. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And we know that you might, somebody might misinterpret this verse to mean that God is a, a genie that we rub the magic lamp and he comes up and, you know, trust in the Lord, delight in the Lord, and boy, he'll give you the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. And that new car you always wanted, that's obviously not what's being said. But The idea here is delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the godly desires of your heart. In other words, he will give you himself. But this is a battle. Before we come to know Christ, for some some of you might be here or in this mindset now, people resist a relationship to God. Why? Because they have no idea that God is so desirable, that God is so delightful that he is the most perfect, holy being. They probably think of him as kind of a harsh, moralistic judge who is just there to set these rules and his laws so that they can't have fun or that they can't fulfill being who they really want to be. And they don't have any conception of the beauty of God and of Jesus Christ. It just doesn't enter their radar screen at all. But when we come to know the true God through faith in Christ, we find him to be the supreme joy, the chief delight of our lives. 
Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's a just judge. Yes, his law is righteous and good, but he is also compassion and merciful and kind, and he has given us himself in Christ. What beauty, what joy. The problem that all of us as Christians know is that we don't stay on that high plateau of supreme delight in God. We often, even in corporate worship, don't we know the experience of singing the hymns and our minds wandering, being distracted with the cares and the worries and the joys of this life instead of the Lord? It's a spiritual thing to delight in God. And our affections for God can run cold or lukewarm. And the desires of our hearts drawn out to many other things. And so to counteract envy, the psalmist is saying, fret not, envy not, but instead delight yourself in the Lord. That's the strong antidote to envy. Envy saps us of that delight and joy in God. Just an illustration from the Olympics about this heart issue. Just think, maybe you've been watching the Olympics the last two weeks, and you know, some of the events are more interesting to you than others, and like, oh, Triple jump, you know, just kind of yawning. Oh, yeah, I guess that guy won. You know, you're not really, and maybe it's Team USA, and okay, you're for them, but it's not an an athletic event that you're that interested in. But what if you're um, a friend of Misty Franklin, the swimmer from California, who will be going into her senior year of high school this year? And what if you're her close friend, and you're watching her swim for the gold with all her friends out there at that school, and you're watching a big screen TV, and you're just cheering your heart out? See the difference between really engaging and just a nominal cheering someone on. That's how I would describe the difference between a lukewarm heart and where we often are with the Lord and a heart that is kindled with a delight in the Lord. We're the friends of Missy crying our hearts out, screaming our hearts out for her. That, that's the sheer delight in the Lord. And so there's this calling in the psalm to combat envy, to guard our hearts against all these related sins, coveting, anger, worry, fretting. Delight yourself in the Lord, and His promise is He gives you Himself. Well, thirdly, commit your way to the Lord, verses 5 and 6. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. The idea there is Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. And verse 6, you can rely on God to establish your cause in the long term. And many times that's not till the life to come. But he will do it. And the verb there, commit your way, is this idea of rolling your burden onto the Lord. Like you'd roll a great rock onto the Lord. The actual idea is in 1 Peter 5, 7 as well, that familiar verse, cast your anxiety, casting all your anxiety or your cares upon him, for he cares for you. It's the same theme. And especially, this psalm is saying, when we compare ourselves to others around us, the wicked and the ungodly, or others who aren't wicked particularly. But God is the one who sovereignly bestows blessing. He can give someone who doesn't care at all about God Olympic abilities to get the gold, and the person doesn't even know or care about God. God chooses 
how he bestows blessing in this life. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust alike, his reign and his son. Maybe it's not an ungodly person you're tempted to envy. Maybe it's a friend. And maybe it is that the Lord has blessed that friend in a way that you would deeply long for that. And so the command here in verses 5 and 6, commit your way to the Lord. Lord, I believe that you're leading my life. I commit my way to you. I trust in you. Committing your way means cultivating a, a real biblical perspective on life. If you went on and read the rest of the psalm, you'd, you'd see how the same emphasis is here as in Psalm 73, that the wicked will eventually be judged by God. But in this life, do you trust in the Lord? Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6 puts it this way. It says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. But that's spoken with the eye of faith, not of sight. Or the end of Psalm 73 in verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But notice, my flesh and my heart may fail. That's part of the suffering and the woes of this life. But the psalmist is declaring his unwavering trust in the Lord. And he's got a biblical perspective There are always going to be ways that you see God's blessings in the lives of others around you in ways that are not true for you at the present time. That's always going to be the case. What do you do when you see that? Psalm 37 is saying, submit your desires to the Lord. Do not fret, do not envy, but trust, delight in the Lord Commit your way to him. And the third, fourth, excuse me, the fourth element is be still before the Lord. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself. This stillness that is enjoined here is not just emptying your mind of thoughts. We can't do that. We can't do that. We shouldn't at least do kind of that Eastern mysticism kind of thing that you try to empty your mind of all thoughts and be completely empty or still in that sense. No, this is a more stillness before the Lord. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Those two phrases describe the same thing. Wait patiently upon the Lord, a quiet waiting upon the Lord. No doubt this psalm is a fruit of David's reflection, his meditation in his older age. Think of verse 25, which we didn't read, but that familiar verse, I have been young and now I'm old. David's old now. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. And David, through the years of growth in the Lord, has learned to be still, has learned something of waiting on the Lord. He's learned something that we see only in part. And this maturity doesn't come automatically. We must work at it. I see really this command to be still and wait on the Lord as a description of one of the primary means of grace, prayer and the Word of God, that as the world seeks to force us into its mold 
And we live in a culture, an age that is just screaming out at all of us, coveting is fine. Look at the advertisements that come to us. That's the whole marketing ploy that you want that. Go for it. You deserve that. And in the face of all these pressures and the strong current of ungodliness that is always there for the believer in this life, we must give ourselves to the means of grace, prayer, the Word of God, corporate worship, fellowship, that serve as an avenue to reorient our hearts to the Lord and His perspective on life. Be still and wait upon the Lord. And then the fifth element in verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Refrain from anger. Possibly this is anger at the wicked in this psalm who are being blessed, and there's some element of anger against them. But more likely, this is refraining from anger against the Lord, against God, who is sovereign. There's an easy temptation to begin to have some kind of anger against God. Here's a warning about guarding your heart against this kind of anger that would arise as you consider your lot in life and you compare yourself to those around you. Or it may come out at anger at those closest to you in your life. You know how heart issues with the Lord overflow in fruit. The root brings forth fruit. So if your car, your new car is only one week old and you go to park it and it gets a ding, you might fret or be angry at the Lord. We were out in Illinois at a wedding a few weeks ago and we went to the rehearsal dinner the night before and somebody came flying by us, nicked my daughter Jennifer's car, just barely hit theirs, but then slammed into a post and hit a car that was parked in the lot. No one was hurt. Thankfully, the guy wasn't killed. But the guy came out of the restaurant whose car it was, and he had parked way in the back of the restaurant in the very safest place so he wouldn't get a ding on his car. Well, he got a big ding on his car from that. But my point is, Out of the abundance of our hearts, the mouth speaks. Often anger at our closest loved ones is a reflection of some degree of anger against the Lord for what he's doing in our lives. And we need to guard our hearts. We must go back to point number one. We battle by faith. We must seek God's strengths. Well, these are the five elements of focusing on the Lord, just briefly by way of applying this to our lives. What do we do when we see that we're falling short? Well, this is where the gospel comes in. Jesus Christ has lived and has died and has been raised for us. Jesus cleanses us of all of our sins, but the power of the cross of Jesus Christ also gives us a new power to more and more die to sinful self and to envy and to live unto God. What about when we fail to delight in God? and we're busily envying or being carried away by wrong desire of some kind, or we're just lukewarm, well, we need to long for that fullness of joy in Christ. Maybe it's been a long time since we've delighted in God, that we've desired Him above all, and we need to repent over the coldness of our heart. Maybe we're grieving the Lord or quenching the Holy Spirit by some particular sin in our life that we need to repent of and hate and forsake and resolve to turn away from. And so we long for the joy that is in the Lord alone. We repent 
over our coldness, and we give ourselves anew to the means of grace, to seeking the Lord in prayer, in His Word, in worship, just the normal means of grace. And we say, Lord, I thank You that Jesus Christ is at work in my life. Help me to seek You anew. That is the way ahead. And we need to give ourselves to that as we guard our heart against envy this week. But maybe you've been listening to all this this morning and you know, really you know nothing of the joy of Christ in your heart. You've heard about Christ maybe. Maybe you've come to church for many years. But you know deep down that there's no reality in your heart. And you must seriously face the fact that it may be that you have never genuinely turned to Jesus Christ and trusted in Him. And so the way ahead for you to guard your heart is to receive a new heart from Christ through faith in Him. He offers that to anyone who would come. To come on the basis not of what you do or anything that you ever can do, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. And He is able and He is willing to give you a new heart and you begin the pathway of growing in the knowledge of God. Well, let me go back to the undertow illustration as I close. I hope you will be thinking about the necessity of guarding your heart this week, of not fretting because of the circumstances of your life. It doesn't mean we don't experience sorrow and hardship. That's fine. But to move into envy is wrong. But instead, delighting and trusting in the Lord. And if the current of envy begins to carry you out to sea one of these days this week, by God's grace, take hold of the strong rope that your Savior, your lifeguard, we might say, Jesus Christ, gives us in the gospel. The promises of the Word of God, just like Jesus is the anchor to the soul, but the anchor goes up to the heavenlies. So we hold to that secure rope of the promises of God by faith again. Take hold of God's promises to you in Jesus Christ and hold to those promises, delighting yourself in the Lord, and He shall give you the good, godly desires of your heart. Father, may you work in us what is pleasing to you. We confess the weakness that we face every day, every week, and yet we thank you that Jesus Christ is a strong Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior is Jesus Christ. We stand in Him, so work your good work in our lives, both in our hearts and in the fruit that comes out this week. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.